this ensured that we managed to gain a pretty comprehensive picture of the epidemic down to an individual level on a population level for the whole country. And so we were able to monitor in real time how things were changing. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time for episode 11 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. And coming up on this episode, we have Dr. Magnus Gottfriedsson, a professor at the University of Iceland and a chairman of the Nordic Society of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. So we're going to be talking about the very successful response to the COVID-19 outbreak in Iceland, a country that I think has done a job on par with some of these Asian countries that get a lot of attention for their successful responses, like Taiwan that we talked about before in an earlier episode, South Korea and Singapore. I think Iceland has done a remarkable job at containing the coronavirus contagion in that country. So we'll talk to one of the top medical professionals and researchers in Iceland coming up a little bit later on in this episode. On the phone line, as always, we have Mark Vandenbosch. Good to talk to you again today, Mark. Right, and it'll be very interesting to hear Iceland has dealt with this and contrasted with the other Nordic countries. We've talked about how towards the middle to late March, the other countries, Denmark, Norway, Finland, really imposed some very restrictive measures on their populations, whereas Sweden chose to provide loose guidelines on social distancing. And in the short term, this has had a repercussion, which we predicted, actually, with the help of one of our guests, a statistician who was on the program about two, three weeks ago. And The death rates of the other countries in the Nordics has remained quite stable. We're talking about, I think, uh, I don't think I have it in front of me, 172 in Finland, 180 in Norway, a bit more in Denmark, 390. In Sweden, however, as of yesterday, we have a total of 2,021 confirmed fatalities due to COVID-19. So obviously, short term, this doesn't look that terrific. But this is a crisis that has only been ongoing for just a few short weeks. And of course, will be with us for probably a year or two, perhaps even longer. So it is a bit too soon to see what's going on. But still interesting to contrast these different approaches. You're right. It will take some time to really analyze uh, these uh, different uh, approaches and different demographic factors and, and many other things that are uh, resulting in very different outcomes in these different countries. And in, in terms of an intra-Nordic comparison, I think that's going to be a very interesting case because we have the, the different countries taking somewhat different approaches. But I think the Swedish and the Icelandic approach, at least in terms of the restrictions on social distancing and such and things like that, aren't radically different, but the outcome is quite a different. So I think we're to really drill down into that and see what differences in terms of the uh, contact tracing and other uh, approaches that and also the the timing how rapidly the authorities uh, took action I think that is also a very significant factor that perhaps a little too early to really analyze that, but I think that's going to be one of the the lessons we're going to learn from this crisis. I think in time we will also see that the countries that have a more modern infrastructure and also perhaps smaller in size, speaking of Iceland specifically in this case, have obviously a better prerequisite to act quickly and in a unified fashion. But we'll see. It's definitely a lot of lessons to be learned from how these different countries have handled this. We also had a very interesting chat after we finished recording, so I just wanted to share a few insights that Magnus mentioned there as well. He really emphasized how important contact tracing was and early contact tracing, early action in general, and also 
getting their hands on PPE, personal protective equipment, masks and uh, and gowns and things like that, was something that Iceland was very proactive about. Iceland, as Magnus will mention in the interview, also uh, developed some important apps and a very uh, informative website that I can really recommend. It's covid.is. It attracts all the statistics uh, surrounding uh, the coronavirus. And in terms of data as well, one thing that we talk about in the interview that I think is worth uh, noting here, Mark, uh, in terms of the different uh, response strategies. And one of the things that is often associated with Sweden, at least we make this association, we're not the only ones, many others, even though the Swedish authorities might to some extent say, well, this is not really part of our strategy, but it's more of a byproduct. And that's the idea of herd immunity and what it would actually take to get there. It seems from what Magnus has to say later on in the interview, uh, he expects that only about three or four percent of the entire population of Iceland will have been exposed to the virus when everything is said and done. Here in Sweden, and we're talking already about something 30 percent or more just here in Stockholm, and uh, to get to a herd immunity level, I think the de facto level is about 60 percent. But you know, the interesting aspect of this is, okay, we're speaking about herd immunity as a byproduct, but it's a little bit like you and I, we we played a lot of sports and we've actually participated in sports team together. And I think back in our days when we played basketball and one team played man-to-man and the other played a zone defense. Well, usually that turned out to be (laughs) a disaster for the people playing man-to-man. And that's sort of what I'm a little concerned about is if we are embracing a herd immunity strategy here in Sweden and achieve that, then places like Iceland and other parts of the world that have not done so, what will the implications be when Swedes or other people from other parts of the world that have been infected show up? It'll be interesting to see how they deal with that over time. If Stockholm is an immune herd, but uh, Sundsvall or Kiruna and other places have had very few um, cases there, exactly how will that work in terms of a traveling even inside of Sweden? Even right now, uh, we're not even supposed to leave Stockholm because of the fear of infecting other parts of this country. United States as well, 50 different states taking uh, very different uh, measures uh, on a state level uh, under the leadership of different governors and how that's going to work in the long run. I think that uh, we can't really answer those questions yet. No, this will be a long-term process. Okay, Mark, so let's uh, then turn things over to the uh, interview with uh, Dr. Magnus Gottfridsson, professor at the University of Iceland. And here he is explaining the logic behind the Icelandic strategy to containing the COVID-19 outbreak. Well, I think the main logic has been focused on the classical things that work, early diagnosis, identification of cases and their contacts, contact tracing, which has been pursued quite aggressively from the onset. Uh, identification early on in the epidemic of clusters that uh, originated in certain areas in Europe among travelers that were returning from their skiing holidays. Quite a responsive uh, effort on behalf of the public health authorities with collaboration with the hospital system, which has risen to the occasion and expanded their uh, capacity to take care of severely sick patients, and also collaboration with private entities such as Decogenetics, which has been uh, instrumental in conducting the screening efforts in the country. It's a very interesting aspect that I'd like to go deeper into, this uh, collaboration between public authorities and hospitals and uh, especially uh, Decode Genetics and some of the uh, the findings, uh, perhaps uh, preliminary at this point, of course. But perhaps tell us how that works and what sort of insights and uh, knowledge about the virus that uh, you're trying to accomplish through this public and private cooperation. Well, I think there are obviously several objectives. Uh, the first and the most important one, obviously, is the clinical component and the public health component to all of this, which uh, is to minimize the damage done by this uh, novel virus, to limit spread and to minimize the burden of illness in the community. And in that endeavor, uh, the uh, hospital was uh, restructured and almost overnight we established a different track for patients that are infected with COVID-19. 
We tried to make sure that they were well educated on their condition. We had very intense uh, phone contacts by physicians that were kind of brought into this uh, team, both nurses and physicians from other departments. When the uh, number of patients uh, rose from one day to another and made sure that uh, we established a standardized platform to register all the relevant clinical data and how to monitor their condition from day one. And when needed, these uh, patients were visited by doctors or brought into the clinic to assess their condition and decide whether they needed to be admitted to the hospital or not. But in the interim, it was really important to stress all preventive measures and education to these individuals to make sure that they didn't end up in the hospital. I think this was important. Patients felt safe at home. They were contacted on a daily basis by nurses or, or doctors where they could vent their uh, worries and ask questions and they felt secure. And I think this averted a lot of unnecessary visits to the ER or to the uh, public health clinics where they could potentially have infected other individuals. So I think this was a, an interesting solution, uh, kind of on the go. And there was also a collaboration with a private entity in the development of an app that some patients downloaded and they could actually go through uh, a standardized questionnaire to register their uh, symptoms as they changed on a day-to-day -day basis. And this was connected to the electronic patient records and uh, translated into a kind of a color-coded assessment of the severity of illness ranging from green through yellow to red. So it was possible to follow how the severity, you know, in certain individuals possibly jumped uh, over a short period of time. And then we could intervene and make sure that they were attended to. So I think this was uh, important. And of course, a very tight connection between the public health system, the hospital and the primary care physicians. And the primary care physicians were responsible for identification of the cases and taking the initial samples. There were some shortages of swabs at some time point, so we had to rationalize the indications for swabs. And obviously, as in many other countries, some shortage of reagents as well and some technical difficulties with running the tests. But with improved planning and through this collaboration with DECODE, as you may know, they have very impressive facilities for these kinds of studies it was possible to solve this problem of lack of resources. Now, of course, the first priority is the containment of the virus there in Iceland itself for the uh, public health officials and such. But also, I can imagine that, I mean, some are calling what's going on in Iceland as being a bit of a, a laboratory for understanding more about the virus itself that uh, the whole world could perhaps uh, benefit from in some way. Can you say anything at this uh, very early stage, uh, what is being learned about the virus in terms of its uh, infectiousness, the, the R-naught uh, factor of, of the virus, and uh, some of the... Uh, other mysteries that surround this, the, the asymptomatic uh, spreading of the virus and whether there's any indication about whether immunity is actually possible for this virus? Yeah, th these are all very important and highly relevant questions. Uh, I'm afraid I don't really have concrete answers to any of these questions. Uh, it looks like the pattern of our epidemic wave was quite similar to the ones that you have witnessed in other countries and our statistical modelers predicted pretty much with good accuracy, you know, the way the uh, epidemic evolved in Iceland. And uh, it plateaued uh, about 10 days ago and has been declining ever since. With respect to the virological knowledge, the different mutations 
of viral isolates or the sequences that have been amplified from the samples and correlation with severity and so forth, infectiousness. It's too too early to tell, but obviously this is something that is highly interesting and hopefully we can shed some light on this as we move forward. Having decoded uh, genetics there uh, on location in Iceland, they've been doing work for quite some time on the Icelandic population, understanding the dynamic of disease and hereditary issues uh, for quite a few years now. Does the population of Iceland itself represent some sort of asset that we really can start to answer some of these questions about, about the virus in the longer term, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think this effort was built on our previous knowledge, uh, the fact that the company is here, the healthcare system is using a fairly uniform approach in tackling this problem. The electronic patient record, which is standardized and accessible from different locations, so it's not fragmented like in, in some other settings. The uh, competence of the healthcare workforce and also the rapidity of task shifting from, you know, other specialties in medicine and healthcare into the COVID problem. And this uh, happened actually incredibly fast. And we, we had a number of healthcare workers that were placed in quarantine because they were among the first ones to be diagnosed and come into contact with the virus as they were returning from their uh, holiday in, in the Alps in Italy and France and Austria. And as a result of that, uh, they volunteered to try to make a difference as they were sitting home and not able to work on their regular wards. And so we immediately had access to highly motivated and knowledgeable individuals to start you know, contacting the patients as the numbers, numbers escalated and basically generated this standardized form of, of data collection almost overnight. Of course, it has been modified along the way, but this ensured that we managed to gain a pretty comprehensive picture of the epidemic down to an individual level uh, on a population level for the whole country. And so we've been able to monitor in real time how things were changing. And you're also conducting random testing as well, right? With uh, patients that don't have any symptoms, you're trying to get a sort of a, a understanding of the entire population to some extent. Is that the, the goal is to test everyone in Iceland, all 365,000 or so citizens? No, not really. Decogenetics is started out by uh, sending an open invitation to citizens here to uh, have a sample taken if they were not symptomatic. So this was based on self-referrals early on. And they subsequently switched to a random sampling of individuals in different locations in the country. So the focus has shifted a little bit. Uh, this has been done in collaboration with the public health authorities. And obviously, it's important for the authorities to make an educated decision regarding the next steps. And we have noticed that the uh, spread of the virus has been uneven in the country. It has, uh, like in most other countries, been uh, spreading quite rapidly uh, within the city boundaries and in the urban areas and a couple of villages that were also hard hit, but some other parts of the country have been relatively spared. So uh, I think it enables the authorities to tailor their efforts accordingly. So you don't necessarily have to enforce draconian measures in all parts of the country as you uh, realize that maybe there is no community spread ongoing in, in certain areas. 
And as you mentioned, it seems like you are on the downward side of the uh, of the curve at this point. Is there any projections on what the total infection will be in Iceland in terms of percentage? I mean, perhaps with some differences between, as you mentioned, uh, Reykjavik and, and other smaller locations in the country. I mean, in Stockholm right now, they're talking about some projections are saying that it will be 60 or 80 percent of everyone here will have contracted the virus, many of which will never know that uh, they actually had it until being tested perhaps for antibodies afterwards. Is there any such um, projections at this point in Iceland? Well, I mean, there is a projection regarding the anticipated total number of PCR positives, which is close to 2,000 individuals, between 2,000 and maybe 2,500 individuals. And at the moment, we're somewhere around 1,800 individuals. This relates to this particular wave of the epidemic. Of course, uh, we anticipate that there will be more to come as the herd immunity is probably quite low. We don't have an estimate on uh, the prevalence of antibodies. Uh, as you know, the uh, best kits or the best methods to measure these antibodies, uh, it's still disputed and it's being worked on and there are ongoing comparisons between different manufacturers and different types of antibodies. And uh, at the moment, we foresee that we will do a random population-based sampling and age-stratified. Quite an ambitious project, I imagine, which will be starting in the next uh, couple of weeks to, to shed some light on the prevalence of seropositivity in Iceland. But I, uh, I would be surprised if it would be much higher than 3 to 4%, but I may be wrong. You mean in terms of total infections, only 3 or 4% of the population? Right, right, with positive antibodies. The spreads and numbers are, are mind-boggling how some project it'll be 80%, others in, in your location, obviously very qualified insights that you have, only 3 or 4%. It's really hard to sort of make uh, make sense of this of this virus, especially uh, in, the, in the longer term. Uh, these have uh, huge implications in terms of how to manage uh, perhaps future waves uh, in the autumn and beyond. And you mentioned also age. Is there any demographic insights from what you've uh, learned in Iceland so far? I mean, is it basically the same as we're talking about in other countries, that it's mostly older people being affected, people with comorbidities. Uh, is there any other ways that Iceland might be able to contribute to sort of understanding the demographic dynamics of this disease? Uh, yes. Um, so the, uh, the public health authorities have been providing remarkably accurate information on various uh, aspects of the epidemic in real time. And there's a dedicated webpage called covid.is where you can track the uh, epidemic, the number of new cases that are identified, the age distribution, how many people are recovering, uh, how many of those that are diagnosed are in quarantine after time of diagnosis. So these are hugely uh, interesting and relevant data, I think, for all those uh, that are interested in epidemiology and the spread of the virus. But um, if we compare the age distribution of our uh, patients to those that have been diagnosed in some other parts of Europe, the age distribution is, in fact, quite favorable, meaning that we've been picking up quite a bit of infections in, in younger individuals and uh, so far been remarkably successful in limiting the spread to nursing homes and geriatric wards and to the elderly population at large. And I think this has been hugely important in reducing the burden on the community, uh, as we know that the level of complications and severity of illness goes hand in hand with increasing age and, of course, the comorbidities that go along with the age. Due to this favorable age distribution, I think the burden has been comparatively lighter in Iceland as compared to, for example, southern Europe and in Stockholm and uh, other parts of Sweden where 
the virus uh, managed to spread inside the elderly communities and the nursing homes. So when you say favorable uh, distribution, you mean that it's better that there's younger people getting it because they're better able to uh, to deal with it and not actually uh, suffer serious consequences or death from it. Is that what you mean by favorable? Yes, absolutely. Okay, Doctor, perhaps I can ask you one last question. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us um, here on this podcast. Um, just in terms of the um, the Icelandic strategy and uh, and sort of this very expert-driven approach you've taken to, uh, to dealing with this uh, situation, what level of public um, support has it, has it garnered? Are you getting... Are people accepting this this strategy, which is very hands-off? I mean, in some ways, similar to Sweden, the fact that you're not closing down uh, schools, you're not closing down um, uh, businesses. And also in terms of the um, – has there been any critique? I mean, here in Sweden, the authorities have received critique from other experts that think that Sweden has been too soft in terms of its, if its uh, response. Is it different in Iceland? Or are the experts and the public on board with this strategy that you've taken? Of course, there will always be some differing opinions on individual decisions. Those are always up for debate. There are daily briefings where the state epidemiologist and the Surgeon General and the police join forces and deliver information and take questions and provide updates on, on the situation. And they have been quite transparent from the onset. They have faced some criticisms, of course, and they have been responsive to those criticisms. If you ask the public, and there are some recent polls asking the public about their trust in those decisions, it has been uniformly favorable. And I believe that the latest poll showed that 90 plus percent of the population was satisfied with the approach that has been taken. So there is a great level of trust. Of course, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to be up in arms all the time and that criticism is not allowed. Criticism, of course, is important and we need to reassess on a regular basis. But so far, I think we have been using our energy to kind of join forces and so far been successful. All right, Dr. Magnus Gottfredson, very interesting to talk to you. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us here on this podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you. My pleasure.